0: You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Okay, everybody. Hello. Welcome to this Thursday's edition of our live question and answer time. Uh, My name is David Guzik. I have a website called Enduring Word. My Bible commentary, uh, or my commentary on the entire Bible, is available on that website. Also at blueletterbible.com, whose shirt I'm wearing today, because I love those guys and I love the ministry that they do. Highly recommend to you the online Bible resource, Blue Letter Bible. And uh, I have a weekly time where I answer questions. Now, last week, we didn't do a video. Look, it was Christmas. We should take some time off every once in a while so last week we didn't do a recorded video we didn't do a live video but we just had uh, you know uh, the week off today we're back and i'm very happy to say that we're back live for today's broadcast or question and answer time so here's just the idea you put in the chat window the questions or comments and I'll respond to them the best I can. We don't have such an overwhelming number of questioners that usually I can't, I'm able to answer most of the questions uh, at the time or at least speak to them, even if I can't answer them. So hopefully we'll be able to do that today. Now, it's our habit to begin with a lead question every time we get together here on Thursdays, whether it's recorded or live. And our lead question today is simply this Can we raise the dead? and it comes to us from uh, Andrea. Andrea writes this. Uh, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus commands us to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. And in John 14, 12, he states, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Can you explain these Bible passages? Okay, so that's Andrew's question, and then she does clarify or go on just a little bit more. She says, the reason I ask for some clarification is that in the past week—now this would be a couple weeks ago—the Bethel Church in Reading prayed over a deceased two-year-old girl for five days in an attempt to resurrect her back to life. I believe that God can raise a dead person and, of course, heal a sick person. I guess my question is, if we can do these things based on the Holy Spirit living in us, the Bible passages seem to suggest that. Uh, Can we actually raise people from the dead? Can we command or declare life into a dead body health to a sick person? Thank you. All right, Andrea, let me answer your question just most pointedly, although it's going to take a lot of explanation after that. But let me just deal with this direct question. Can we raise the dead? And the answer to that question is no. We can't raise the dead. Now, here's the explanation that continues on. First of all, understand, God does promise that all the dead will be raised. Now, understand, I said all the dead will be raised. Oftentimes we think that resurrection is something only for the righteous. But let me read to you John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. It says this, Do not marvel at this. These are the words of Jesus. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So there is a resurrection of life and there's a resurrection of condemnation. So all the dead will be raised. God promises that kind of resurrection. This life is not all there is. There will be a life to come. And those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, who look away from self and look to Jesus for salvation— they will be given a resurrection body suitable for the glories of heaven. Those who do not put their trust in Jesus Christ will receive a different kind of resurrection body, a resurrection body that is suited for the agonies of hell. Now, that's in the big eternal picture. Let me get back to this to also say that it is also in the power of God on the rarest of occasions to bring temporary life back to a dead body or to an apparently dead body. God has his power. God can do it. We see it happening in the Bible. Now, we have to say, and I hope you understood how I phrased my response there. I used the phrase, on the rarest of occasions. If such a thing were to happen, it would be a miracle. And almost by definition, miracles are rare. We shouldn't expect this to be like normal operating procedure. It, it, but the bringing of temporary life back to a dead body or to an apparently dead body that that's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about resurrection. Resurrection means to be raised to life never to die again. What we're talking about when we talk about God raising the dead in the here and now is something that we would call temporary resuscitation let me tell you something. Everyone in the Bible who was raised to life, such as Lazarus, for example, he died again. Now, understand, there's a difference between resurrection, which is promised to everybody, and resuscitation, the coming of life back into a dead body, which happens sometimes in Scripture, and we believe, or at least I'll just say I believe, that God could do it again. It is within God's power to do that, and— God might do this as an answer to prayer. So it's not within our power to say, dead body be rise. It's not within our power to do what Jesus did when he said, Lazarus, come forth. And he had the power, the authority within himself over death to command the body of Lazarus to come forth. Now, what I just said there, that we don't have this authority, that we don't have... Now, we may pray for God to do it. God may do it as an answer to prayer but that we don't have the authority to do ourselves, I got to deal with a couple passages here. And one of them was brought up by Andrea. She said this, Matthew chapter 10, verses seven and eight, Jesus said to his disciples, and as you go preach saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely you have received, freely give. Now, there are many people who say, This is God's promise that he gives dead-raising power and authority to his followers today, that Christians should have the ability to raise the dead today, because Jesus promised it in Matthew chapter 10, verses 7 and 8. And I would just have to say, I object to that. I don't agree with it. And let me tell you why. It's just a simple reason of context. If you go back two verses— Take a look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 5. It says, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying. Understand that. Jesus gave that command to these twelve. Now, there are certainly times in the New Testament where Jesus spoke to the twelve, and I think he also spoke to all believers, but not in every occasion. And we have to be able to rightly divide the word of truth on these occasions, can we not? And so what I want you to see is just because Jesus spoke it to the 12 doesn't mean that this is universal authority for every believer in every age. There's no mistaking the uh, authority, preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead. That was something given to these 12, to the 12 disciples following Jesus. 11 of whom were excluding Judas, 11 of whom became the 12 apostles of the early church. Now, uh, this was not given to believers in general, and it was not even given to the 70 who were sent out on another occasion. The passage, Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, and extending on in verses 7 and 8, says specifically these 12. And here's what we have to be careful of. We have to be very careful that we don't take promises in the Bible that were meant for somebody else and that we apply them to us. Brethren and sisters, be careful about this. Now, I, I believe we need to boldly claim the promises of God in Scripture. When God makes us a promise, we can boldly claim, but we understand not every promise in the Scripture is given to us, and many biblical promises have conditions that need to be fulfilled, even if they are to us. And so... I, You can march around a city seven times, and the walls aren't going to—you do not have a promise from God that the walls are going to fall down. That was given to Israel in the book of Joshua. It's not given to us today. So we need to discern between the problems, and this is just done from basic hermeneutics, basic biblical uh, interpretation. Does a promise in the Bible apply to us, or does it only apply to the people it was spoken to? Sometimes that's a little bit difficult to determine, but often it is not. So we need to apply them this way. And also, I need to deal with this passage that Jesus spoke in John chapter 14, beginning at verse 12, where he says this, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I believe that this promise, this uh, word from Jesus, has been misunderstood by many people. Let's just take it what he says here. Jesus says, "'He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also.'" And greater works than these he will do. And look, I I just have to say, Jesus did not mean here greater in the sense of being more sensational. Uh, uh, I don't know. Let's say that Jesus raised the dead with the speaking of a word Lazarus, come forth. Well, what's greater than that? Then it's speaking the dead, uh, raising the dead with the waving of a hand or the thinking of a thought. You don't even need to speak a word. You see what I'm saying? Jesus did not mean greater in the sense of more sensational. Um, Jesus walked on water, and you're going to carry a wheelbarrow across the water. That's even more sensational. No, that's not what Jesus meant by greater. He did not mean greater in the sense of more sensational, but greater in the sense of magnitude. Jesus was going to leave behind a victorious, working family of followers who would spread his kingdom to more people and places than Jesus ever did in his life and his ministry. And listen, I believe that. That's happened, hasn't it? Have not uh, more people heard the gospel in the 2,000 years than heard the, the kingdom of God preaching directly from the lips of Jesus in the course of his ministry? Almost an infinitely number more those greater works have been done. And if you want to talk about the miraculous, uh, more people have been healed as people have prayed and asked God to heal uh, since Jesus ascended to heaven than happened during the days of his earthly ministry. I mean, we could talk about this again and again. It's not greater in the sense of more sensational, but greater in the sense of magnitude. And isn't that what happened on the day of Pentecost? In Peter's first sermon, the first sermon preached in the early church, there were more converted than are recorded during Jesus's entire ministry. Now, there are some who believe that what Jesus meant here was that individual believers can and should do more spectacular works than Jesus did in the days of his earthly ministry. And for anybody who believes that, I would just simply say, I'm waiting for the proof. I'm waiting for the proof of someone who has repeatedly done greater works than walking on water, calming storms with a word, multiplying food for thousands, raising people from the dead. Again, recorded more than three times in Jesus's work. And let me say this, even if it were proved beyond any doubt that one person after Jesus had done such things— It still does not explain why there are not now or have not been through the centuries thousands of people who fulfilled this. But again, when Jesus said, greater works than these he will do, either that was a promise for every individual believer throughout all time, or it was a promise to the body of Christ collectively— that collectively we would do greater works in magnitude than Jesus did. So folks, I think we need to guard ourselves from the idea that it's our purpose, our calling, it's God's purpose in our lives for us to kind of out-miracle Jesus, that God has promised us this in John chapter 14, verse 12. Now, does God still do miraculous things today? Yes, he does. And I would rather see God do more miraculous things than less, but we need to be very real about this. And if I could just say this one last aspect, I've spent almost 15 minutes on this single question, but it's an important one. I think we need to be very real, very transparent when the miracle does not happen. If someone believes God boldly for a miracle, I may not blame them. But when it doesn't happen, I believe that person, and especially leaders connected with that work, have a solemn responsibility to stand in a forum as public as was the knowledge that they were praying for this, or that they declared it to be so. We were wrong. And if somebody's going to declare somebody's healed and they aren't healed, they need to be honest about it they need to say, I was wrong. If somebody's going to declare somebody raised from the dead, and they're not raised from the dead, then they need to be honest about it. This whole idea of the honesty and the integrity of the ministry, I got to say, if I can just vent for just a moment here, I'm weary of people proclaiming and declaring the miraculous it doesn't happen, and then they just pretend like they never said anything. With me, that doesn't fly. Now, I don't expect anybody to be perfectly right. I don't fault a person for believing that God might do something miraculous, and then it doesn't happen. I I think we've all been there in one degree or another. We believe God would answer a prayer, and it doesn't happen. We've been bold in faith, and it didn't fulfill the way we thought it would. I think we've all been there, but, but. You need to be honest about it. You can't just pretend like it never happened. You need to be humble and contrite. All right, let me go on to a few other uh, questions here, Uh, get to some of the ones in our sidebar. Uh, Jill sends this question. She said, I heard a church service translate the quality of the Holy Spirit comforter as coach. I don't know Greek, so I can't refute it accurately. Can you confirm or divide that as a translation of comforter? Well, Jill, I would say this. Coach catches a sense of that ancient Greek word paraclete or parakletos, that is translated comforter. Um, the idea is, in the ancient Greek someone who comes alongside to help. And you could say that a coach is someone who comes alongside to help. But to me, to simply translate it one to one, that ancient Greek word that describes the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to translate it one to one to coach, I don't think really captures the full essence of it. It captures an aspect of it, but I I wouldn't agree with having a one to one translation of that. So again, but just to say, the, the the best description of that ancient Greek word uh, comforter or parakletos is one who comes alongside to help. By the way, uh, just in the sermon I preached this last Sunday, in Luke chapter 2, Simeon, it is said of him that he waited for the consolation of Israel. And that is a messianic title for Jesus, not found in the Old Testament, but declared there in the New Testament— The consolation of Israel. And that word consolation is that same word, paracletos. Yes, the Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside to help, but it's also a title of the Messiah himself. Okay, uh, next question from Alex. Hi, Pastor Guzik. Is it possible to contact you personally? I'm Pastor Alex from Barcelona, Spain. Alex, you can contact me through the Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara website. Uh, Look on the Calvary Chapel website, look for the contact information for the different pastors and such that are on there, and through that, you can contact me, Uh, or just uh, leave a comment or something uh, with your email address uh, on the YouTube video, and I can get back to you. Uh, Jill says, uh, Pastor Guzik, is your Chinese translation uh..." in—you say, Madeline, it would be um, Mandarin or Cantonese prayers. Jill, it's in Mandarin in the written language of uh, simplified characters. Uh, Written Chinese is in both traditional characters and in simplified characters. This is Mandarin and, more specifically, Chinese uh, written in the simplified characters. Hope that answers that for you, Jill. Next question comes from Agnes, says, How do I overcome fear of sharing my faith with others? How do I stop being ashamed and embarrassed about my faith in Jesus so I don't get denied? Oh, Agnes, God bless you. What a wonderful question. How do I overcome my fear of sharing my faith with others? You know, Agnes, I do find it interesting that we are just different kind of people uh, by nature. You, You know, some of us are born more bold than others. And if you were not born bold, don't condemn yourself. Now, you don't have to be satisfied with that, and God wants you to grow in your boldness, but don't condemn yourself for being a person that was perhaps born uh, not as bold as other people. But I do just want to say this. I want to say the only way to do it is just to make yourself do it. And if you could do anything, why don't you go out, and find a way to talk to some strangers about Jesus Christ and take another person with you, maybe somebody who's a little bit bolder than you are. The only way to do it is to uh, just force yourself through and to find out that when you do it, uh, it's not the end of the world. And when somebody rejects what you have to say in the name of Jesus, it's not the end of the world. Another thing I want to tell you, Agnes, is don't expect to come to the day where it's never Um, challenging for you to share your faith. I know some people who are amazing evangelists, and you would think—I'm thinking of one brother in particular—amazing evangelist, and I just thought that this fellow must be bold as a lion, the way that he spoke. And so I talked to him about boldness, and he said, I am so frightened every time I share the gospel with anybody. I was blown away by that. How could this be? And he goes, I have to deal with that fear every time I just learn— I got to deal with it and do it anyway. So Agnes, I guess that's the way to do it. And let me just suggest one more way. Maybe God has a ministry for you in a way that you uh, online or over email or on social media, that you share Christ with people that way. Maybe you have a little bit more boldness behind a keyboard than you do one-to-one conversation. Find ways to do it, and the more you do it, the more comfortable you'll feel, even though you may never come to the place where it's absolutely comfortable. Great. Uh, Tula says, God bless you. God bless you, Tula. Susan says, Happy New Year, Pastor Guzik. Love your videos on YouTube. Will you be doing any on Revelation this year? Okay, Susan, I've been thinking about that specifically, but to be honest, I don't know if I'm going to get to the book of Revelation this year, because this year I'm going to try to record as many as possible a teachings through the book of Psalms. That's kind of my goal for this year, for 2020, to record as much as possible teaching through the book of Psalms. Maybe next up on my list after that is to do the book of Revelation. Thank you for that, Susan. Philip says, Thank you so much for your clarity and your proclaiming of the truth of the word in a world full of false prophets, praying, praying on the vulnerable. Thank you, David. Well, God bless you, Philip. You're very welcome. Jennifer says, Can you explain Jonah and free will? Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. So, if the Lord is not supposed to overrule someone's free will, why was it dealt with this way? Okay. Jennifer, great question. And let me just answer back on this. You know, there's a lot of talk that we do in the Christian world about free will. And I want you to know something I avoid that phrase, I avoid the phrase free will. And this is why I avoid it. Because you can make a very valid argument that we don't have free will. That, in the words of the title to a book by Martin Luther, it's actually a debate that he had with somebody in his day named Erasmus, we are under the bondage of the will. That even for those who are saved, because of the influence of the flesh, there is some kind of bondage. We are not Absolutely free to make any choice we like. Our will is under all kinds of influences, many of them evil. So I don't like using the term free will because it can be legitimately argued just how free is our will. So here's what I say in oppose. I'm not so much into the phrase free will, but what I am into, I am into the, the phrase real choice. I think it can be argued that we as humans don't have a truly free will, but we do have a real choice. We have choices to make that determine our destiny, that that are in front of us, and that matter. Our choices truly matter in time and in eternity. Now, getting back to your question about Jonah, did Jonah have a real choice? Well, let's think about that. He had a real choice whether or not to obey God to go to Nineveh or to get on the ship and to flee, and he chose to flee. He had a real choice on the ship to either continue with the other sailors in the midst of the storm or to say, throw me overboard. It was his choice. Matter of fact, the the sailors tried to talk him out of it. It was his choice to go into the sea. He had the choice— of remaining in the belly of that great fish for as long as he wanted to, but he chose to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, you, you would rightly say, but David, didn't God influence those choices? You better believe God did. God said, well, Jonah, you could stay on the ship if you want, but there may be a storm that breaks apart the entire ship and kills everybody on board. It's your choice. Jonah, you got the choice to stay in the belly of that fish if you want, Um, but that's not much of a life, is it? It's your choice. God does this with us all the time. He has a way of boxing in our choices to guide us towards His will. It's one of the ways that God works out His eternal plan with all of His sovereignty while still giving us a real choice. And we see this time and time again. Sometimes it's more apparent than at other times. In the case of Jonah, it's very apparent. But God often, you could even say, regularly works this way, guiding us through a—it's not that our choice is taken away, it's that we're kind of boxed in because of consequences in regard to our choices. Great question uh, there, um, Jennifer. Philip says, please, can you tell us which study Bible you would recommend? There are so many out there. Oh, Philip, you ask a very tough question here because I gotta say, Philip, I'm not that into study Bibles. I'm just not. Um, I, But I'll give you two that I would recommend if I were to recommend a study Bible. Uh, number one, this is a great one. Oh, not there, sorry. Uh, over here is a great one. The Word for Today Study Bible, Uh, I'm just showing you the spine. The Word for Today Study Bible contains Bible notes from Pastor Chuck Smith. Uh, You can get it in the New King James Version, maybe some other versions as well. Uh, But the Word for Today Study Bible is a great one. It has notes in it from Pastor Chuck Smith. Another one that I really like, it's old school, and I don't even know if it's in print today, but you could easily get one used is the Open Bible. This was one of the first—you can see how mine is pretty worn—this was one of the first study Bibles to come out, oh, 20, 30 years ago, and it's good. The introductions it gives to the different books of the Bible, uh, different notes and such, but the Open Bible is a very good, helpful study Bible. Uh, Those are just two that I'd recommend off the top of my head, Um, but I gotta say, Philip, just to be honest, I'm not that into study Bibles. Anthony, good afternoon to you, brother. Uh, Philip, glad to hear you're listening from England. Happy New Year to you, Joseph. Thank you. Thank you for the uh, blessings upon my ministry. Uh, This has been a marvelously blessed year for Enduring Word in 2019, and I'm very grateful for that. Looking forward to 2020. I'm gonna to get to another question that came in uh, through another place, not through the question. It's from Gunnel in Sweden. I'm gonna be right up front. Gunnel is my mother-in-law, my Svarmor. And uh, she asked this question, asked me to answer it on the thing. And of course I'm gonna do it because I love you Nils and Gunnel. Here's a question from Gunnel in Sweden. She asked this, what is the difference between the seven and the nine? What is the significance biblically of those numbers? Well, let me deal with them one by one, seven and nine. First of all, seven. The number seven is a big number in the Bible. I read one reference, and look, I I haven't uh, independently verified this, but one reference I read said that the number seven appears in one way or another in nearly 600 Bible passages. That's a lot of usage. It may be the single number most referred to in the Bible. I don't know for sure. And we see it all throughout the Bible. We see seven days of creation. We see the seventh day made holy. That's it's a Sabbath day. We need the seventh year, a Sabbath year for ancient Israel. Seven times, seven years, that's the year of Jubilee. Seven years Jacob worked for Rachel. Uh, In the days of Joseph, there were seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. Uh, There were seven sons of Jesse in 1 Samuel chapter 16. There were seven days of unleavened bread, seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, Namian the Syrian was commanded to dip seven times in the Jordan River. There's seven signs in the Gospel of John. There's seven churches that Jesus spoke to in the book of Revelation. Again, again, and again, and again, we have the number seven coming up in the Scriptures. And the basic idea—there's really not a lot of controversy on this—the basic idea behind the number seven is that it's communicating completion, perfection. It's the full measure of something. And when I say perfection, I mean perfection in the sense of completion. Everything is filled. Everything is complete. There are people who call the number seven the number of God. I don't know if that's true. You could also argue that three is the number of God. But seven, because God is perfect, God is complete, there's nothing lacking in Him. You could say that seven in the Bible often does suggest completion and perfection. Now, what about the number nine? The meaning of the number nine is much more disputed in the Bible. We don't have a lot, excuse me, a lot of references to the number nine. We know that Jesus died at the ninth hour. That's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We know that the lame man died at the beautiful gate. Uh, He was healed at the ninth. uh, I said the lame man died. I take it back. Let me correct that. Jesus died at the ninth hour. You find that in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The layman, he didn't die. He was healed at the beautiful gate. Sometimes it's amazing what comes out of my mouth. The layman at the beautiful gate was healed at the ninth hour. That's in Acts chapter 3. Cornelius the centurion had his vision at the ninth hour. That's in Acts chapter 10. If you want to count the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, there's nine fruit of the Spirit. And so what does the number 9 mean i don't really know there's no universal judgment on that some people say that the number 9 indicates judgment finality and completion maybe they're taking that a lot from jesus dying at the ninth hour some people say no the number 9 is 3 times 3 you know the trinity times 3 maybe the perfect movement of spirit of renewal i don't know i I don't find a lot of evidence that maybe tying it to the fruit of the Spirit. I would just say this, that there is no overwhelming, clear meaning to the number nine in the Scriptures. People suggest different things. But the number seven, that seems to be pretty clear. Completion, perfection. Thank you, Gunnar. Thank you, Nils. That was a great question. All right, let me get to the remaining questions here in my sidebar. Susan is saying yes to the Psalms. Amen. I hope to get through many of them in 2020. Tula says, reading the Bible for the first time. Love your app. It helps me so much. Tula, that's great. I'm glad that you love the app. Please, if you have not downloaded the Enduring Word app, it's available both for your iPhone, your iOS devices, and the Android devices. Go to the website, EnduringWord.com, and you'll see a notice up at the top. Look under the About section. And you'll see where you can download our app very easily. There's links to it. Uh, uh, Faherman says this. Uh, Happy New Year, Pastor Guzik. I have a question for you. Are you a dispensationalist? What do you think about Jesus proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom to Israel, which was rejected? Okay. Let me answer that question. Am I a dispensationalist? Yes. But in some ways, I think that term today is almost meaningless because there is such a broad diversity of people who call themselves dispensationalists, people with very different understandings of the Scripture sometimes, um, that it's such a broad term that I don't know if it has much meaning. But sometimes I've heard it said, that you can call yourself a dispensationalist if you believe that there is a difference between Israel and the church. You may be a different kind of dispensationalist, but if you believe there's a difference between Israel and the church, biblically speaking, then you are in some way or another a dispensationalist. And I would have to say, I do believe that there's a difference between Israel and the church. Um, I'm not one of those dispensationalists who believe, for example, that uh, the Sermon on the Mount is not for Christians. There are dispensationalists who say that. The Sermon on the Mount was only for the Jewish people. I don't believe that. There's all different kinds of—the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of this. Um, The fundamental way that I am a dispensationalist is believing in a distinction between the church and Israel and how those things work out. So I guess that's the answer I could give you uh, in the most um, pointed way. Th- that would be a good topic for a future uh, program to drill down a little bit deeper on dispensationalism. Um, I have a problem choosing the right Bible. Also, Tula says, I brought an NIV. Is that okay? Okay. Um, Tula, I got to be very honest with you. I don't have a very high opinion of the latest editions of the NIV. There are older editions. I'm looking to my shelf, and my NIV is out of reach. Uh, I have, I do like the older edition of the NIV, that which was out, for example, in the 1980s. I don't think that the new version of the NIV is horrible, but I don't think it's that good. Um, but the best Bible is the Bible that you'll actually read. Uh, it's better for somebody to read the NIV, even in the newer version of it, than to not read the Bible at all. Uh, but I prefer the older edition of the NIV. Uh, you're welcome, Philip. Um, Kimberly King asks, What is the 1040 window? Kimberly, the 1040 window is a term used by people who study missions and evangelism. It describes the window. Uh, between, oh, I get confused, which is this, uh, 10 latitude and longitude. I forget which is latitude and longitude. It describes an area of the world where unreached people groups are concentrated. And so there's a large number, a large percentage of the unreached people groups in the world today reside in this geographic window on the globe that they call the 1040 window. So I, I hope that's helpful for you. Well, look. That's going to be it for today's question and answer. I love it that on this second day of of twenty twenty, that uh, I could be together with you. I'll be together with you next Thursday, God willing, and if I live, for another live chat and question and answer time. Thank you. I, I want to give a very earnest thank you to everybody who has supported the work of Enduring Word in 2019, especially those of you who were part of our year-end campaign. It was a tremendous blessing. Thank you. I I think you're supporting a good work for God's kingdom and to reach a world that needs to know the Bible. That's what my Bible resources are all about. Thank you for praying for the work of Enduring Word. Thank you for supporting it, and uh, I'm so glad that you could join me. Um, God bless you. Happy New Year, and uh, we'll join you again in a week. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.